Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. A shark is attracted to the exact kind of splashing and activity that occurs whenever human beings go in swimming. You cannot avoid it. If you open the beaches on the 4th of July, it's like ringing the dinner bell, for Christ's sake. Look, Mr. Vaughn, Mr. Vaughn, I pulled a tooth the size of a shot glass out of the rectal of a boat out there, and it was the tooth of a great white. Look, we depend on the summer people here for our very lives. You are not going and to have a summer those beaches, we're, just we're not only going to have to close the beach, we're going to have to hire somebody to kill the shark. All right, so we're talking about sharks today, but maybe a little bit more about how they interact with people. Although, one thing I want to say, and I'm going to say it more than once today, sharks are amazing animals, and they're really, really fascinating and kind of mysterious. There's much more that we don't know about them than what we do know about them. There's so much to be studied about them, um, and they're in much more danger from us than we are from them. But, like, the only thing anybody cares about, 99% of our interest in sharks is whether they're going to attack us or not. That's, like, all we care about. And you can sort of understand that, and it's certainly no laughing matter anymore. They're uh, driven by climate change and other factors and uh, migration patterns. They are around the beaches from North Carolina, certainly all the way up to New England, more than they ever have been before. In 2016, uh, we had uh, a death up in Cape Cod. So we're going to talk, um, let me just tell you, in the second segment today, we'll be talking a little bit more about what people think they can do about shark attacks and whether any of those things are particularly realistic. And we will talk a little bit more about the marine biology of the shark. We'll also be talking in the final segment uh, to somebody who's been with us before, the naturalist, Simon Montgomery, uh, who has uh, done one of those things where you go in a cage uh, in, uh, I think, off the coast of Mexico uh, with a great, uh, with a great white shark near the cage. And what it's, what it's like to experience this animal in a relatively safe but terrifying environment. But right now, we'd like to talk to somebody who's kind of on the front lines of this whole question of what happens when the beach activity gets humming, as it is now, uh, and uh, in an area where sharks are known to go hunting after seals. Greg Johnson is a school teacher, musician, and artist who paints a whale murals and a longtime lifeguard at Nauset Beach in Orleans, at Cape Cod. He's uh, competed in the Life Saving World Championships in the Netherlands in 2016, and in advance warning, a cell service is really tough uh, on Cape Cod it's in certain places, and I think he might be in the parking lot at Nauset right now trying to hold on to a signal. Greg Johnson, welcome to our show. Thank you. Nice to be here. Um, I guess maybe the place to begin is, has your job changed more uh, over the last few years as the presence and visibility of, of sharks uh, around Cape Cod has been more of an issue? Um, yeah, Colin, our job has changed significantly. Um, I kind of like to sum it up by saying we went from uh, sort of a, a Baywatch scene to uh, a MASH unit where I mean, most of our training is about, uh, you know, how to apply a tourniquet and how to use a uh, blood absorbent gauze and, um, you know, all the things you're going to do in the aftermath of a potential, you know, a shark attack. What, what if it does happen? Whereas earlier on in the days, um, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, I've been here since 1979, most of our training was geared towards, you know, making water rescues with mm. uh, Peterson belts. So, yeah, we're more um, leaning towards the first aid end of things due to the appearance of sharks here on our beaches. 
And have you had to, I mean, you know, you probably heard that clip from Jaws at the beginning uh, talking about how the activity on a beach is exactly what might attract a a shark. And uh, we should also say that where people like to go swimming is kind of like where sharks like to maybe be. And and if they're going to bite, they might be biting right there. So have you guys had to change the rules about where and when people do swim at your beach? Um, we have posters at, at our toll booth where people drive in, um, you know, to pay our parking fee. And there's posters all along the boardwalks of, of sharks, which clearly state, don't swim alone, don't swim at night, uh, stay in waste water or even less. We're trying to keep people on the sandbars. We don't let people go in over their head anymore. Uh, and if they do start to wander off, um, we have to, you know, blow our whistles and get people back in. So... There's still the problem, though, with, yeah, we protect maybe a half a mile or more of, um, you know, by those areas. We really can't tell people what to do. So you still get people swimming off the protected beaches in waters that are pretty dangerous. And it's funny that this interview is happening right now, Colin, because we just had a pot of seals go by us heading north. And uh, a short while later, we saw another shadow in the water that we can see from our towers. And it was clearly a shark slowly following the pot of seals north, Mm. maybe 50 yards off the public beach. Right. So and just to emphasize uh, what Greg is saying, for those of you who haven't been to the Cape, so there are these uh, beach, be- beautiful uh, uh, national she- seashore beaches like Nauset, uh, but then you get off that beach and you just you can walk uh, north quite a bit up the arm of the Cape, and there are a lot of places that are just aren't patrolled, aren't uh, have no lifeguards, and people... Uh, probably feel free to do whatever they want and take whatever risks they want to do. And so, and, and Greg, that must be kind of frustrating, not only that they do it in those areas that aren't uh, protected, but, you know, the only thing that you're trying to do is keep people from being bitten by sharks. And it seems like people are notoriously not willing to obey rules anyway. Yeah, I'm not really sure why. I'm, uh, people got to be watching the news, TV, and, you know, like your show right now, they got to be listening, at least um, that there's more and more uh, fatalities due to sharks here in New England now that, you know, it's really starting to get out of control. And, uh, you know, I think we we have close to 150 sharks that have been tagged already. But according to Greg Skolmo, the shark expert around here, that number is probably double or more with sharks they haven't tagged. So why you would swim out far with those kind of statistics is uh, kind of mind-boggling. I don't understand why people don't listen. Maybe they're not afraid. I don't know. I, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of denial. People think it won't happen yep. to me. It'll happen to somebody else. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of worry wards who are constantly worried that it's going to happen to yep. them uh, and maybe not uh, a good in-between. So if somebody is, so let's say that that dark shadow uh, following the seal pod uh, takes a, a little bit of a left turn and goes inward and, and does attack somebody in the swimming area, there's a tremendous risk to you if you were to run in there toward the shark activity while the shark is still active, right? Um. Yes and no. We we are instructed by our administrators, if there is an, a shark attack, um, not to go in unless the scene is safe. Um, kind of a tough call and a judgment call. But the statistics show, according to Greg Skomel, that once a shark uh, bites a human, they're no longer interested. It's not what they want to eat. Mm-hmm. And that the rescuer coming out to help that other person, statistically, they will not go after the rescuer, which was a good thing to hear of Skomel. Uh, during Skomo's talk, but it's still, uh, you know, that's a question whether 
you, we would want to go in or we wouldn't. Uh, most of us are saying we can't just sit there and people are going to expect us to react to an attack. So why are you sitting there? So I think a lot of us are saying I'm going to go in. A lot of other people are a little afraid to do it. But uh, I think it's a judgment call and a, a total situational thing as to you know how close is the shark after the bite? Uh, is that person still in sight? Are they asking for help? You know, et cetera, et cetera. It's kind of a, a judgment call, I think. So one of the things that people like to do at Cape Cod is surf, um, and you've surfed in the past. And yeah. um, obviously this involves putting yourself out uh, in deeper water, out towards that dark shadow following the pod of seals. So uh, tell me, first of all, I, I, I would imagine from everything you're saying so far, you're not quite the surfer you used to be. Um, I haven't surfed in over two years, um, at least by myself. Uh, when there's a group of them, it's, you feel a little bit safer. But there are a lot. There's a big surf uh, community here on Cape Cod. A lot of local surfers still surf. They surf in numbers. They uh, have kind of an, an, a surfers alliance going, where they get together and have meetings and talk about, you know, shark safety and where and when do we go surfing, that kind of a thing. But they're not willing to give up their livelihood. You know, they love surfing so much, and they don't want to give it up because there's a, a potential danger of sharks in the water. But, uh, you know, I, I sort of understand it, but I personally haven't been in in over two years surfing myself, so I'm I'm a little bit skeptical. <laughs> Greg, there's, a, there's also kind of a minor in- industry growing up around things that might deter a shark, you know, something you could wear or maybe a zebra-striped surfboards. I don't know why sharks mm-hmm. would be afraid of zebras, but um, I, are you, A, seeing any of that, and B, do you put any stock in, in any of those ideas? Um, there's a few of the lifeguards here that wear, wear some kind of a, a ankle bracelet that mm-hmm. gives off gives off an electrical impulse or something, and I don't know that I buy into any of that. Uh, like you said, I mean, what what's the difference if your surfboard or your wetsuit has stripes up? And I don't know. Maybe there's some scientific truth to that, but uh, I don't see a lot of that being uh, done around here. At least on Cape Cod, maybe they do in Australia or out in California, but I don't see a lot of that uh, kind of behavior with the humans um, in, in reaction to the shark. So I, I, I don't know what's going on with that whole. <laughs> But it's not catching on. I, I guess, you know, the other thing, I, I've spent a lot of my childhood um, visiting the Cape, and yeah. uh, there are dangerous ocean currents, particularly as you got, you know, uh, from, from Nauset up towards uh, Coast Guard Beach and then some of the Wellfleet beaches. I mean, you, you really got some big ocean waves there. Um, and, and people like that. They like to go body surfing and stuff like that. But, I mean, there are dangers, and a riptide can pull you quite a bit further out. And that's what your your job, I assume, used to be, riptide, undertow. People get too far out. They're too tired to swim back, stuff like that. Now you would be putting yourself in considerable danger going out to that person. So how do you guys handle that? Um, well, every year after the winter storms have done their thing, the, the beach is a different beach every time I come here. Every summer there's a different uh, kind of sandbar or yeah. Uh, rip current situation. A, a rip tide is something that is that that's the the term is rip current, Colin. I'm not trying to be a it's, it's cool. expert, but there's there's a, a rip current that is just the ocean volume of the water that has to go back out to the sea. Once it travels over the sandbar, it right. finds a common channel uh, to go back out. It, it just it's a real strong pull, strong current that people sometimes get sucked into and then get pulled out into. But uh, 
We had a lot of those back in the early 1980s. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm, I'm looking at the beach from the top of the dune uh, from the parking lot. And there's one very large rip current area. Um, you know, it's sort of like a stream going out to sea that's between two sandbars. Mm-hmm. So the water travels over the bar and then has to travel back out somewhere. So it, it develops, a you know, one little stream area in which it, the the current gets so strong that people very often, usually little kids or the elderly that aren't strong enough to fight it, and they get caught it and get pulled out. But as it is right now, the, the water is deeper in those areas, so we don't let people go in there. So right mm-hmm. now we're kind of keeping that uh, problem at bay so we don't have to go in, keeping people out of um, the rip current areas. We have signs that we put up. There's a buoy right in the middle of it, and we keep people out of there now. So it's just uh, being a preventive lifeguard as opposed to waiting for it to happen and then reacting. Right. Well, it sounds like good lifeguarding to me. I, I hope, despite uh, all these shadows in the water, that you can have a lovely and enjoyable summer. Greg Johnson, uh, school teacher, musician, artist who paints whale murals, and longtime lifeguard at Nauset Beach in Orleans, Cape Cod. He competed in the life-saving world, champion, uh, world championships in the Netherlands in 2016. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right. When we come back from this, uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about the actual marine biology of uh, the shark. Uh, I think the shark is an animal worth understanding in terms uh, that are greater than whether or not he or she might bite us. Uh, But we'll also talk about the things that people think they might be able to do to avoid shark attacks, whether those things work. The great white, Larry, a big one. And any shark expert in the world will tell you it's a killer. It's a man-eater. Look, the situation is that apparently a great white shark has staked a claim in the waters off Amity Island. And he is going to continue to feed here as long as there is food in the water. And and there's no limit to what he's going to do. I mean, we've already had three incidents. Two people killed inside of a week, and it's going to happen again. It happened before. The Jersey Beach. 1916, 1916, five five people people chewed up in the surf. In one week. All right. Um, so uh, you even hear that reference to 1916. That part of the movie was not entirely fanciful. But, you know, there's a way in which Jaws and movies like it just they kind of define our, our whole vision of sharks. And it's 99% of our curiosity about sharks is tied to whether or not they're going to attack us. Sharks are really, as I said before, really interesting, mysterious animals. Uh, We'll talk a little bit about um, what you should be worried about and maybe what would help and what wouldn't help you. Uh, But I hope we can also talk just a little bit about sharks, per sharks, sharks, qua sharks. George Burgess is uh, Director Emeritus of the Florida Program for Shark Research and Curator Emeritus of the International Shark Attack File based on the University of Florida campus. Uh, He's uh, joining us now. Uh, and uh, so, first of all, welcome to our conversation. Good to be with you, Colin. So, I mean, one thing that we could say with quite a bit of confidence is that sharks are in much more danger from us than we are from them. The body count is very, very lopsided in that regard. But, I mean, if you were going to explain to people how much of a risk there is of a shark attack at any given moment, what would you tell them? Well, uh, first of all, your, your point is well taken. Uh, sharks kill about six people a year worldwide. Well, we kill about 100 million of them. So uh, it's pretty obvious who's the predator in this relationship. But uh, that said, uh, your chances as an individual of being bitten, far less dying, are are, uh, amazingly high. Uh, uh, I calculated for uh, a number of beaches in in the United States, for instance, that uh, 
uh, almost six million to to one. So, uh, you know, really, your chances of uh, being injured or dying of other causes as related to aquatic recreations are always much much higher than than sharks. Right. I mean, in fact, we were just talking to a lifeguard at Nosset Beach in 1973, August 1973. At Nosset Beach, uh, there was a rip current that killed several dozen people. Uh, I mean, most of them got killed because they didn't know what to do in that situation. But uh, that kind of gives you, uh, you know, a, a ratio when you think about six shark related uh, uh, deaths. Uh, per, Absolutely. Per uh, more people are killed uh, crossing the uh, the road from the beach to the other side of the a road to get a, a cold drink than are, than are killed by sharks. I'm assuming that we of the news media uh, are probably more hindrance than help in, in all of this. I mean, it, it's important that people know about risks and, and know what's out there. But uh, just like watching the TV news and stuff like that, I feel like I'm seeing a, a big effort to scare me out of my wits. Yeah, absolutely. I was, I was uh, watching uh, one of the the major networks last night for their their evening news, and they they uh, had as one of their major teases uh, uh, sharks uh, being near people in in the water in Florida, and sure enough, they showed some uh, uh, drone pictures of sharks swimming in the in the water amongst people, and uh, I had to laugh because I'm based in Florida. Uh, you can see that every day, every hour, uh, having been up in the in in the air over the beaches uh, many times, it's uh, it's a standard practice down there. Of course, the, uh, the visibility of the water is particularly good there, so you can see them more often. But uh, uh, anybody who's been in the water in in, in Florida uh, more than a couple times has probably been uh, within six to ten feet of a shark. So I think we have to get into the area of anthropocentrism. Uh, you know, there's a, a considerable hue and cry that you hear from people around this time of year, basically saying, well, let's make the ocean safe for human beings, right? There's this kind of like, well, let's give all the seals vasectomies so there won't be as many of them and the sharks won't come to eat them. Let's, you know, let's put sonar pulses out in the water to scare seals and or sharks away. Let's do something. And, and it does kind of raise that question. What's the ocean there for? Is it there for people to go swimming in the summer, or is it there to be the ocean full of an entire ecosystem? Maybe you can philosophize a little bit about that for us. <laughs> yeah, I'd be happy to do that. Uh, I think most people that enter the sea equate the experience with uh, visiting their YMCA pool, uh, and, and nothing could be farther from the truth. Uh, when we enter the sea, we're engaging in a wilderness experience. Uh, and it's no different than if we go uh, hiking in the Rocky Mountains and, and where we, we are exposed to uh, bears and mountain lions and snakes or whatever, or, or crossing the Serengeti Plain where we, we have tigers, or I'm sorry, uh, lions or, or uh, elephants or, or leopards. Uh, when we enter the sea, we're entering a wilderness. And unlike both of those previous exper- uh, experiences, um, we can't even breathe underwater. So we're bobbing around uh, in the water, uh, and uh, to do so we, uh, appropriately, we, we take off essentially uh, all of our clothes and, and enter barefoot. Uh, and there we, we encounter animals that live in the sea. And uh, using the shark uh, as the, uh, uh, as the uh, focal point, um, our playground in the sea, uh, that uh, stretch of water for, that goes down to about six feet deep because that's where most people go because we want to keep our, our feet on the bottom. Uh, that stretch uh, is our playground. Uh, but for the for many species of sharks, 
it's their uh, their dining room. And so uh, we wouldn't think about uh, visiting our neighbors at, at dinner time and walking in uh, nearly naked into their, their, their dining room. And, and so uh, we, we need to remember that that's what's happening when we enter the sea. We, we talked at the beginning of our conversation about that body count. Uh, sharks are a protected species. I assume great whites are a protected species. Maybe you can talk a little bit about what, what's been going on with their population over all these years. Yeah, uh, uh, sharks have been uh, uh, the objects of either directed or indirected fisheries. Uh, indirected meaning that they get caught accidentally in other in other fisheries. And uh, in the open uh, sea, for instance, where uh, there's big fisheries for tunas, and, and that's uh, an important species in Massachusetts waters where we now have a white shark uh, situation going on, um, uh, the, the, the hooks that are baited for, for tunas and swordfishes also catch sharks, and uh, the sharks die, and uh, they aren't intended to be caught, but they die nevertheless. Same thing goes in, in other areas of the world in all sorts of other fisheries, gillnet fisheries and other net fisheries. Uh, but there's also directed fisheries now aimed for sharks uh, because the fins of the sharks are, are worth a lot of money. In, the, in, in, uh, in Asian countries, southeast of Asian countries, uh, shark fins have great value. Uh, they sell here... Uh, in the United States for uh, 25 to $30 a pound uh, off the boat. Just take them off the, the fins off. They don't have to be refrigerated or anything because they're sent to Asia dried. So uh, they're easy money for fishermen. And as a result, uh, wherever you go in the world, and I've been in a number of third world places where uh, a single shark uh, fins uh, will feed the entire village, um, the, the, any shark that gets caught is a dead shark. And as a result, populations are, are declining around the world. You know, I think um, what makes them even harder to protect, I mean, you can uh, point to a, a protected species or an endangered species, and if it's a, a pretty little bird or, or some kind of, you know, desert mammal or something, uh, you can get people kind of over onto the cause. Uh, I mean, sharks have a publicity problem. Uh, they do occasionally bite people, uh, and sometimes they kill people. Uh, and I would imagine, dating back from the time of 1916, Jaws was right about, right? That There was a shark uh, problem in 1916. It, it, it's harder to get people to think of the shark as a being that you, we want to protect if we're also worried that it's going to kill us. You're right. Uh, uh, sharks have an image problem. Um, and uh, they could use one of those uh, for hire guys that, uh, uh, you know, some congressman mm-hmm. uh, hires after he's caught uh, sleeping with his, his uh, colleague's wife or whatever. So, uh, yeah, they, uh, they, they do have that problem. Uh, and as a result, um, um, uh, in a lot of quarters, uh, when, when there, uh, a shark problem occurs, and I'm, I'm calling it a problem when something sort of suddenly jumps to the forefront, such as what we're seeing in Cape Cod here in recent years, uh, one of the initial reactions among many people is, let's go kill some sharks. And, uh, of course, the, uh, the idea there is that we'll kill the shark that, that, that bit this person. Uh, but the chances, of course, of you finding the shark that did it uh, are are uh, slim to none. Uh, it's just really basically a sacrificial kill uh, where people feel better by, for trying to take a, an eye for an eye, even if it isn't the right uh, shark. Um, and that's, that, that still uh, underlies uh, the thinking in some quarters. Um, and, and, of course, as a scientist who uh, 
gets called in to deal with shark attack on a, uh, in various places in the world, uh, one of my first things is I've got to tell people is you're not going to catch the shark. Uh, and the reality is is that what we need to do is start modifying our behaviors uh, rather than shark behaviors. Uh, again, coming back to your earlier point that uh, that the uh, the sea is a wilderness and we're eco-terrorists when we, 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 we visit it. And, and because we unfortunately do not necessarily think that way, another thing people are going to want to do is put up netting that somehow or other uh, cordons off uh, a part of the swimming area along the ocean or uh, or wear something that has an electric current that goes through it, which maybe the shark won't like, or put an electric current on the ocean floor where we want to go swimming. I'm assuming none of those things are going to be particularly effective in stopping the great white who's blundered into your path. Yeah, you're you're correct there. Um, um, there's been a, a, a cottage industry uh, that's developed in in uh, the last ten or fifteen years or so, uh, with, uh, with people trying out diverse different devices that they they claim will will uh, keep us safe. And uh, you know, sh- uh, most of the devices are only marginally effective, if at all. Uh, you mentioned putting up a a net around an area. Now, that's an effective way. If you have the correct kind of netting and, and moorings and so forth, uh, that is a way you can you can protect a beach from, from sharks. And if you do it in small areas where the humans uh, uh, will, will swim uh, in complete safety, that's fine. Uh, but those kind of netting only work in, in low-energy situations, not where there's no surf, no, there's no big currents. And so, for instance, in the Massachusetts uh, example, um, you get the full ocean surf coming in on the, on the Cape there uh, with uh, the rip currents and, and so forth. Uh, those would not stay in place uh, as a result of uh, those, those ocean uh, energy situations. So uh, it only works in very special situations where you got like a little bay that's a sheltered bay or something like that. Right. We should say that uh, using sonar buoys uh, would be prohibited by the Marine Mammal Protection Act. I mean, there's some ways in which we, at least as a species, have agreed we're not going to mess with marine life too much, right? Yeah, and and, and, and in our sort of current example involving the white shark, uh, it comes into play especially because um, the white shark is a protected species, and uh, therefore we, uh, we can't catch them. Um, and uh, in, in regards to the marine mammals, as you, you so accurately noted, under the Marine Mammal Protection Act, no seals or, uh, or can, can be touched. And so any thoughts of altering the behavior or the biology of, of, a, of a, a seal is an absolute no-no that would not work with the Endangered Species Act, uh, and, and, and appropriately so, of course. And, and, of course, one of the things we've seen with, with the uh, addition of that act in, in the 1970s uh, through today is that now those seals are beginning to, to gradually get back to their population levels of, of where they were uh, 150 years ago or more uh, before we killed them all off. And, uh, and at the same time, the, uh, the protection of the white shark is slowly allowing that one to go back to its normal levels before we uh, overfished it. So uh, as a result, what we're seeing now are returns to normal levels mm-hmm. uh, of both of those species uh, along our our east coast of, uh, of, of the United States and the west coast as well, 
uh, and uh, what we are going to see, of course, is that those marine mammals are now going to take over some of the areas that we have taken over from them in their absence, in other words, building their colonies, and we're going to see more white sharks attracted to those seal colonies because that's what they like to eat as adults. So uh, we can fully expect that there's going to be, uh, shall we say, a, a clash of cultures uh, and remembering that the one culture is a, a natural one uh, in the sea and the other one is a unnatural one, us entering the sea uh, as we do. Right. I mean, the people are relatively recent arrivals in this world. And we're sitting here going, hey, what are all these sharks doing here? And the sharks, of course, have been wondering the same about us for for quite a while. Uh, And um, and I'm assuming also another thing that's happening here is that uh, because of climate change, the migratory pattern of some sharks anyway is changing. They're not going to maybe want to be in Florida. They're going to maybe gravitate a little bit more towards these northern waters. Yeah, uh, uh, part of that uh, is related more to uh, the fact that they're mostly a cool water shark. Mm. And they're mostly a cool water shark in part uh, because of things that they enjoy eating the most, in fact, have to eat uh, the most, are are the marine mammals, the, the seals. And uh, seals, naturally, even before man came in and screwed it all up, uh, didn't get much farther south than North Carolina in the wintertime. Uh, because they can't uh, live in warm waters. Uh, and, of course, uh, there was at one time uh, some seals that lived in the Caribbean, a very sp- a special one called the monk seal, um, and uh, we killed them off. The last monk seal uh, went extinct in, in the uh, early part of the 20th century. So while the uh, the, the whites do travel down uh, from uh, New England waters down to Florida in the wintertime, when the waters cool off down uh, our way, uh, they used to go into the Caribbean and, and, and eat the monk seals. Uh, but those those being gone now, um, those movement patterns are are uh, are not quite as effective uh, as they were 150 years ago. Uh, but uh, yeah, white sharks do migrate uh, in in some places. We know uh, from tagging studies that white sharks have migrated, for instance, from South African waters all the way over to Australia. Right, that's the entire expanse of the Indian Ocean. I mean, that's, that's like right. a the really long Indian trip. Yeah. Very long trip. Uh, we also know from tagging on our west coast that the, uh, uh, the white sharks take vacations in Hawaii uh, right. and come back. Um, and uh, well, we haven't had uh, any real cross-Atlantic sort of stuff uh, uh, demonstrated yet, but I'd be surprised if we don't. Yeah, that, that thing about Hawaii is fascinating, that they leave their hunting grounds kind of along the California coast and for no obvious reason congregate in a certain area closer to, to Hawaii uh, for a whole bunch of winter months and, and kind of hang out all in one place. Um, right, they, they do that and they have a, a, another place off of uh, uh, southern part of California, uh, sort of in the middle of the sea where they, 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 they aggregate as well. And... Um, uh, our our guesstimates probably, as most scientists would guess, is you know if, if animals aggregate, uh, they're there for a reason. They're either going to aggregate because there's a good food source uh, available at that time, or because they have a, a little love making on their mind. Right. And uh, more than likely, uh, uh, the copulation that occurs between males and females, of course, uh, sharks copulate. 
uh, that copulation may occur in one or both of those areas. Well, also, I mean, if they're too close to the California coastline, they see all these out-of-shape tourists in bathing suits, they're going to lose all interest in sex. No wonder they have to get off the coast uh, <laughs> to do this. Yeah, hey, some people shouldn't wear bikinis. You're right. So, uh, George Burgess, one last question here. You know, we talked about all the things that don't work, but, you know, we had a lifeguard on at the beginning talking about from his tower being able to see a shadow coming, uh, uh, trailing after a pod of seals. Um, drones are like towers that move. I, I would imagine drones might be be a little bit useful in at least giving people some warning about what what's where in the ocean. I think they 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 offer a lot of promise. Um, you know, here in Florida, again, the, the waters are pretty clear. Yep. And um, uh, from flying over, I can tell you, you can see sharks very very easily. Uh, so uh, drones work very fine. In fact, the the story last night that I saw in the news was built on on drone footage of of sharks near people. Uh, I. Uh, in, uh, in years ago, I used to go to the beach and stay at a condominium uh, where we were up uh, two or three stories high. And uh, I would sometimes sit there uh, drinking a cool drink uh, at late in the day and uh, look down on the water. And I could see these shapes moving up and down the beach. And at one time I saw a, a very large shark, probably a tiger shark, uh, uh, moving through the area, so I ran down and, and yelled people to get out of the water because there were no lifeguards there. Uh, but in Florida, where there are lifeguards, um, they they communicate with each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, when a shark is seen in the water, they'll pull the people out of the water, uh, and then they uh, uh, call the next beach uh, up from them, wherever the shark is headed, and said, hey, we've got one coming your way. And, uh, and then they let their people back at the water once the shark leaves. So... Uh, drones could work very well uh, in in many situations, and uh, the question I have relative to New England waters is: uh, is the water clear enough to see the sharks in the water? Because there's a lot more uh, plankton in the water in, right. in those northern areas, and so the the water isn't quite as clear. All right. Well, thank you uh, very much uh, for this conversation, uh, George Burgess, uh, Director Emeritus of the Florida Program for Shark Research. Uh, We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. Uh, We're going to tell a different kind of shark story. Uh, This has all been about people hoping to avoid meeting a shark. Uh, You're going to talk to somebody who sought out that encounter. All right, so uh, we've been talking about uh, human and shark encounters. Um, As I say, we could do an entire separate program just about the marine biology of sharks and all the mysteries about them. I mean, we really don't know to what degree they are social. Uh, We know they do congregate. We don't really exactly know why they migrate. There are theories. We don't know how they navigate over those huge distances. You heard George Burgess talk about how they'll go from Australia uh, to South Africa. I mean, that's a long distance. Um, we don't really know what they do with their time. Uh, uh, when they're on some of those little vacations, they take they dive into incredibly deep ocean water, maybe down two, 3,000 feet. But we don't know what they do when they get down there. Um, but 99% of our curiosity about sharks has to do with whether or not they are going to attack us. Uh, and there's a lot more to them than that. Uh, anyway, uh, a good way of getting uh, into a conversation with Simon Montgomery, a naturalist and the author of 28 books for adults and children, including, most relevantly to us, because it's one of our favorite shows uh, ever, The Soul of an Octopus. Uh, this is uh, a book that inspired us to do a show with Sai uh, about this exact uh, topic. And she's written an essay in one of our favorite, if not our favorite online publications, despite our failure 
failure to ever figure out how its name is pronounced, but it's either Aeon, Ion, or Eon. Uh, anyway, the, the essay is titled Danger Girl, What I Learned About Fear, Sex, Desire, and Dread from the Peculiar Pleasures of Diving with Great White Sharks. So welcome back to our show. First of all, Simon Montgomery. Oh, I'm delighted to join you again. So um, now we've left uh, friendly, intelligent, fascinating octopuses, and we've moved on to scary sharks. But maybe we haven't moved all that far. Um, uh, and, and so let's begin by saying that, uh, having you say a little bit about the experience that you sought out. You, you, many people like to do this. Not everybody, obviously. We'll get into why that is. Uh, but you, what, you went into a ch- cage in a place where you knew sharks were going to come see you. Yes. In fact, um, this was at the place that George was just speaking about off Guadalupe Island, mm-hmm. off Mexico and California, which is sort of known as a shark cafe where sharks um, often meet. And there's beautiful clear waters there. So it's an ideal spot to see great whites. Now, I had gone with Greg Scomal several times to look at sharks and watch him tag them in Cape Cod. But you know that water is so soupy and green, and I really, after seeing these, these gorgeous animals, after seeing them in the soupy green water and being with Craig, I really long to kind of get up close and personal in clear blue water. So um, I went on, a, on a, a boat with a group of, well, I was one of four women and 17 men who were going to go cage diving. Um, just right off the coast of Guadalupe Island. And what you do is you, first you, you don all these weights on your chest and your feet, and then you get, you go into a cage underwater and you're breathing through a regulator. I mean, right there is a bunch of stuff that many people might not want to do. Mm -hmm. And folks on the deck of the boat offer the sharks delicious chunks of tuna mm-hmm. so that they will come by and you can take a look at them. And I've got to tell you, before before I even went in, my heart was pounding. I did not know if I was going to be scared to death. I didn't know if I was going to be thrilled to death. And at that time, I didn't know that fear and desire often are processed in the same parts of the brain. Mm-hmm. So maybe it was both. But when I got into the cage and looked around, I was pretty nervous, but I was nervous that I wouldn't see a shark, that I'd gone all that way for nothing. And so after a few minutes of just looking around at the blue, there it was. It was as if the ocean had gathered itself into the shape of a shark <laughs> and become alive in front of me. And he swam toward me. We know you can see if it's a male or a female um, in that kind of clear water. And it turned out it was, a, it was a shark. The first shark was one that's known to researchers. His name is Jacques, after Jacques Cousteau. And what I felt when I saw that shark swimming toward me was so surprising. I did not feel any fear at all. I felt tremendously excited, but at the same time, a, a sense of, of peace washing over me, as if this gorgeous creature who looked to me like a knight in white satin, you know, they have that, that silvery gray top and this beautiful, pure white is driven snow underside, and a 
dark black eye. And here he was coming toward me. He glanced into my face, and it wasn't as if there was any malice in it at all. He just took a look at me and swam past and got to have a bite of tuna and swam on. So it was magnificent. And, uh, but it must have been interesting if he, I mean, he really kind of cocked an eye at you. Yeah, he just noticed me. You know, um, most of the time when when people get bitten, it's because the shark makes a mistake, and it's often in water that they really can't see. And one of the things that many people don't realize about these these sharks is when you have to kill everything you eat with your face, it's a really good idea right before you make contact with your meal to shut your eyes. And that's what they do. Mm. So... If that happens, and particularly if you're in murky water, you know, they, they do make mistakes. And, I mean, it, it can be a really serious mistake. But when you compare it to the 250,000 to possibly 400,000 people every year who die because of hospital errors, um, they make mistakes very infrequently. And nobody wants to get rid of hospitals. Right. I mean, we shouldn't get rid of sharks. Right. When we talked to George a little bit about this, too, that people and, and some of it is driven, I think, by the news media, part of it and some of it driven by movies that we actually love to go see and be scared by. There are all kinds of reasons for it. But there's a way in which we've inflated the danger of sharks. And at the same time, having talked to the Cape Cod lifeguard, also managed to minimize it in our own minds so that we will go swimming in a place where we really might get bitten by a shark. Uh, and at the same time, we've, we've inflated this danger uh, way out of proportion to what it, the real danger is compared to everything else, which is, I think, what you're suggesting. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I, I looked up some numbers. I did a book called The Great White Shark Scientist. And when this came out a few years ago, I looked up some numbers, and the number of Americans injured by toilets in one year is 43,000. No one's afraid of a toilet. The number of Americans injured by buckets and pails in that same year, which was 1996, 11,000. And then you look at the number of, of Americans injured by sharks of all species. And it's like nothing. It's it's ridiculous to be worried about this. What we should be worried about is global climate change. Right. And, I mean, we talked a little bit about that, too, that's affecting them, and it may be actually putting them and us on collision courses that didn't exist uh, previously. So, um, so Simon Montgomery, I, I guess maybe I also want to just talk to you a little bit about, as a person who writes a lot about in the natural sciences, what interests you about sharks? To me, they're very mysterious. They have comparatively large brains, but I don't think we know too much about their intelligence, even if there was a way to think about their intelligence the way that we think about other kinds. Uh, they do these incredible migrations. We're not 100% sure why they always do that. Uh, we, they take these deep dives. We don't know what happens when they do that. Uh, they can live to be 70, which is an amazing idea, a great white, sh white shark that's 70 years old. I mean, what have you, A, found out about sharks that has kind of blown your mind, and what do you find ultimately still the most mysterious about them? Well, there's a fellow named Sam Gruber who has done some um, work on intelligence on sharks mm -hmm. and found that they are quite intelligent. They are as intelligent as, you know, a medium-sized mammal like, a, uh, like an antelope. Um, in fact, he's done um, ex uh, experiments with mazes with sharks, and not only are they very good at memorizing the maze, but he set one maze up for the U.S. Navy, 
And then the funding ran out and years went by. He still had his sharks. Well, years later, one of the Navy guys was in town and dropped by and, and said, hey, do you still have that maze that we funded? And he said, sure, why don't we set it up? The sharks remembered it all those years. So they have long memories. That's one of the things that comes with being able to to live to 70. How, now, how could it be told that the sharks remembered it? Oh, because they, they could negotiate the maze right away. Oh, right, right, I mean, right. gosh, and I'm terrible. I mean, I'm like, where did I park? You know, mm-hmm. I can't even remember where I was an hour ago, and they remember this stuff. So they're, they're, they're pretty great. They have all kinds of senses that we don't, and this is one of the things that fascinates me. Um, they, they have these ampullae of Lorenzini, which if you look up close at the shark, they look like kind of freckles on their, on their chin and their snout. And with these... They can detect the electrical, um, the the electrical currents given off by the beating hearts of their prey, mm. and they also may be able to navigate using an electrical sense. They see and experience the world, the same world that we live in, the same planet that we consider ours, in a way that we never can. And so, in that way, you know, they they are more than human they are they are superhuman and they go back so far in time and to me you know when i first saw that shark appearing in out of the water in in the distance in the blue i think one of the reasons that i felt so calm and and at peace while at the same time excited was here comes somebody who has run the ocean since the devonian you know, only recently have we even started to go in the ocean. Only recently have we even been on this water planet. And since, since we got in charge, we've screwed everything up. We have messed up the climate. And by 2050, there will be more plastic in the ocean than fish. So I think one reason I was so thrilled to see that shark was I felt like, here comes somebody who knows what they're doing. Right, it was a a chance to apologize to him, too, maybe. Um, (laughs) So we're going to run out of time here, Asai, and there's so many things uh, to talk to you about. But, you know, I'm more likely to die of a heart attack than a shark bite. Even if I went and thrashed around in the water off Wellfleet every day, I'd still be more likely to die of a heart attack. But if they had said heart attack week on some TV channel and I could watch all these people having heart attacks and then there was a couple of movies about people getting heart attacks where you watch, I wouldn't really partake of any of that. It doesn't really strike me as really interesting programming that I would really enjoy watching. Um, so what, why, what is that up with us in sharks? Because we're so afraid of them and we, we overblow our fear of them, but we also, we can't stop looking at them. No, you're so right. Humans are fascinated by predators and it makes evolutionary sense. I mean, gosh, for most of our lives as a species, we were hunter-gatherers. And we didn't really live long enough to have a heart attack. While we were walking over the savanna or whatever, we were more worried about being eaten by a giant lion or a, or a smilodon or, um, or dying in childbirth. Or, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but, but looking at predators fascinates us, and it's extremely easy to learn to fear predators. People who did these unethical experiments many years ago would try to teach children to be afraid of, like, a spider versus a flower. You could make a child afraid of a a flower, but it took much longer than to teach that child to be afraid of a spider or a snake, and we are the same way with sharks. It makes sense. 
Um, well, Simon Montgomery, it's always so great to talk to you, and, and almost, and you are the easiest person to interview on the radio that I've ever met, and I've interviewed a lot of people. So, uh, <laughs> well, it's a joy talking with you. Paul. All right. So, uh, Simon Montgomery, uh, her essay in Eon, Danger Girl, What I Learned About Fear, Sex, Desire, and Dread from the Peculiar Pleasures of Diving with Great White Sharks. And you may also investigate one of her 28 or so books. Uh, I wanted to save a little time in here at the end because I forgot to write the credits again. Uh, as has been mentioned, I think this show is a creation of our senior producer, Betsy Kaplan, uh, who has collaborated with Cy in the past on our Octopus show. And Kion Wolf has been on the board, uh, making everything sound uh, really, really great. Uh, and Carolyn, our wonderful intern, has been on the phones. And uh, tomorrow we're going to have Playing on the Air, which is a, a show we like. Uh, we're going to run it for the 4th of July. Uh, they have terrific renditions of plays. I'm assuming you're listening to me on Wednesday. If not, ignore everything about tomorrow and things like that. Um, but they run these, uh, they create these plays for radio consumption. Uh, and then uh, on Friday, we'll be back live with our regular episode of The Nose. And it's interesting, The Nose, our cultural roundtable, had a baby. Uh, and uh, The Baby is a podcast that was started by three of our regular Nose panelists who got to know one another through doing The Nose. And it's a podcast about uh, Big Little Lies. It's I think it's called Big Little Podcast. Uh, it's uh, Rebecca Castellani and Teresa Kramer and Carolyn Payne. They'll all be here to talk about the new season of Big Little Lies and uh, Chuck Woolery's uh, uh, many, many vasectomies, uh, which he's now ready to pass along to seals uh, and limit their population to, and anything else that crosses our cultural radar in between now and then. But thank you so much to, uh, for listening. Um, I'd say don't go near the water, but go near the water. Just don't be an idiot, all right? And don't get eaten. And if you do get eaten, don't blame me.